I'll invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 8 to 20 today as we continue through this. But I do want to begin reading in verse 1. Just to remember what we looked at last time and a little bit of the context. So Galatians 4, beginning in verse 1 through to verse 20. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made good, to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Staying alert for a long period of time is... uh, something that can be exhausting. Uh, Some who've stood watch, uh, scanning the horizon for many hours, have reported that they started to see things that weren't really there. Uh, Strain and exhaustion of such a thing can result in our eyes and our brains playing tricks on us such that we think we're seeing something when there's really nothing there. Of course, on the other hand, Trying to stay awake and alert and scan the horizon, there's the danger of falling asleep and then missing a danger that is actually there. When it comes to staying alert and on guard for spiritual enemies and dangers, it can likewise be exhausting and challenging. And certainly these two different errors, one where we might overreact uh, and and see a threat that's not really a threat, or on the other hand, falling asleep and, so to speak, and missing a real danger, not seeing a real threat. Both of these are possibilities 
when we think about spiritual threats. And the reality is, as time passes, we can become weary in the spiritual battle that we live in. And in some ways, the longer we go, the harder it rages and the harder it becomes. I mean, how many seem to start out very well only to fizzle? Even those who don't altogether walk away and reject the faith sometimes still kind of end in a bit of a whimper and in compromise. Early zeal can wane over time. We can grow weary of trying to be alert and trying to be discerning. Or we can get so caught up in it that we become bitter. We become overly harsh and judgmental. Nevertheless, despite these very real dangers and difficulties uh, in this matter, diligence is something that the scripture calls us to. And this is one of the beauties of a church, of being in covenant together as a church, is that we do not go this road alone. We have one another to help each other out along the way. We don't face this all by ourselves. In our text today, in verses 8 to 20 of Galatians 4, the scriptures again teach us of the need to remain diligent in spiritual matters particularly being diligent to remain true to the gospel in which we have believed and by which we are saved. And in verses 8 to 20, Paul admonishes the Galatian church to this very task. And he does so by way of a loving rebuke. Um, Both the love that Paul has for the Galatian church and his commitment to truth and, and, and therefore the need to rebuke them Uh, Both of these things come through very clearly in these verses. And so we are looking here at the importance of remaining spiritually diligent. And so the first point of our outline is stay diligent against enslaving legalistic religion. Stay diligent against enslaving legalistic religion. Uh, As we have seen, uh, when the true gospel of God's grace In Christ Jesus is believed by sinners. The sinner is graciously as a gift of God, united to Christ, pardoned of our sin. We are gifted righteousness. We're declared righteous. And we are adopted as sons. We are given an inheritance, eternal inheritance, eternal life. All of that is a gift of God's grace upon faith. In verse 7, Paul said, we looked at this last time, So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is what is received by faith. And yet, if you recall, the Judaizers who are troubling the Galatian churches, they were saying, no, 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 that's that's not sufficient. That's not enough. Uh, Yes, believe in Jesus. That's correct. But you've also got to be circumcised. You've got to also keep the food laws and the other ceremonies of the Mosaic Covenant in order to be truly saved, in order to have the full status of God's children. It's these other things that kind of get you over the line, these works. And many of the Galatian churches that Paul had preached the gospel to were now going along with this message. And Paul has been showing how Wrong this is, and he continues here by showing that this is in fact a step backwards for them 
It is a return to slavery. So he says in verse 8, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. So the Galatian church uh, would have been made up of both Gentiles and Jews as well. You think uh, likely mostly would have been Gentile believers. And Paul is saying here that their former pagan religion was idolatry. It was an enslavement to false gods, those that by nature are not actually gods. Uh, that's what he's saying. He says in verse 9, But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. So if you remember back into verse 3, Paul mentioned that Israel was enslaved to the elementary principles of the world while they were under the Mosaic Covenant. That covenant imprisoned them under sin. This is what we've seen the last several weeks. It was constraining them, and it was revealing their sinfulness to them. It was certainly good to keep the Mosaic Covenant and its various ceremonies when that covenant was in effect. But even as we read in Hebrews 9, it was dealing in externals. It didn't cleanse people internally. And true believers under that covenant understood this. They understood that. They relied on God's mercy and trusted God's promise to send a Messiah, much like Abraham did even before the Sinai covenant was struck. They were trusting God in his grace and mercy even as they continued to keep the necessary ceremonies that were required under that covenant. But as Paul has been saying, when the fullness of time had come and the offspring of Abraham that had been promised arrived, the time of the Mosaic Covenant's guardianship ended. And so you recall, as we've been seeing, the Mosaic Covenant was intended to be a temporary thing, a temporary covenant. And it was to help show that justification is clearly by faith alone and specifically in Christ Jesus alone, as Christ came and fulfilled all that that covenant had been pointing to. And so this demand that the Judaizers were making to add works of the law to faith, to, to, to say you have to come under the law of Moses in order to truly be saved, could not be more wrong. It is really just another form of the slavery that the pagan Galatians had escaped by faith in Christ. They had come out from under idolatry and legalistic striving. They had come out from under slavery to sin. And now these Judaizers were seeking to put them right back under it. So the days and the months and the seasons and the years that he references in verse 10 are speaking of the various feasts and celebrations of the Mosaic Covenant. They were starting to believe now that these things contributed to their righteousness before God, to their righteous standing before God. And so Paul says this is no different, just a different form of your former slavery. 
So again, there's kind of a double whammy, that's, that's technical, uh, theological language, uh, to their error. That is, for one thing, the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, was always meant to be temporary and to give way at the coming of the offspring, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ has come, and therefore that covenant is done. And now we, we come to God in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and now they're trying to resurrect that old covenant, these Judaizers were, and say, you've got to come under this. And so they're wrong for that reason. But also, they are making those ceremonies part of the grounds of their salvation. Faith in Christ is not enough. You've got to do these other things to get you over the hump, to get you really in, to make sure you're really, truly heirs of salvation. And Paul has been saying throughout this that no works of the law, it doesn't matter if it's one of these ceremonies or any other work of the law, like trying to love your neighbor, none of those things are going to justify you or contribute to your justification before God. Rather, that comes by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. And this is the thing Paul is trying to uh, uphold and uh, argue for and have the Galatians not move away from. And so as they are believing these Judaizers that, yeah, we've got to do these things in order to, to really be saved. They're returning to slavery, to legalism. There's no salvation in that. And so Paul's appealing to them, how can you do this? Now that you have come to know God truly through Christ, or rather, he says, now that God has come to know you, how can you turn back to these weak and these worthless elementary principles of the world? That I'm going to try and do these things in order to earn my way to God. You think your righteousness before God is to be found in performing these ceremonies? Really? That's all that God, that's what God requires? Why turn back to, to that when you have reached the high watermark of sonship? We looked at it last time. Adoption by God's grace. Heirs of eternal life by faith. You're justified sons. Why in the world would you turn back to that now and say, well, actually, no, I've got to try and do these certain things to, to really a, 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 attain to that status? He's asking, why, why, why would you go back to this? Legalism is a religion of devils. It is idolatry. It is weak and it is worthless. These works cannot, your works cannot commend you before God. They do not contribute to justification. They do not result in at the end of enough faithfulness. Now you are adopted. He's saying you believed in Christ. By faith, one is adopted. You belong to God, known by him. By faith. He's reminding them of what it was he taught them and preached to them. In verse 11, Paul expresses his concern for them. He says, I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Now, Paul doesn't think that one who is truly born again, who is truly and savingly known of God, will be lost by God. But he does understand that there are Judases. There are those who make a profession of faith, but who prove to be rocky ground hearers. There are false professors of faith. 
And if these churches were to abandon the gospel that they profess to believe, then that's what they would prove to be, false professors. And so his labor would, in a sense, be in vain. And there, there seems almost to be a measure of uncertainty in Paul as to how exactly he sees this playing out with these churches. Or it's possible that he speaks in this way in verse 11 as part of his rhetoric to motivate them. That is, that he's trying to deliver to them a verbal gut shot, if you will, to make them think, ugh, there's, to, make them, to make them cringe at the thought of Paul's labor among them truly being in vain. Quite likely, Paul knows that there will be individuals who may f- go either way on this. That there are false professors who will follow the heresy of the Judaizers. And then there are genuine believers who will reject it. Uh, later in, in chapter 5, verse 10 He will express confidence there that his readers will, in fact, take no other view than what he is proclaiming to them. And so he's he's not in total despair here. And yet there's acknowledgement that there is a real danger that these churches are in. We're reminded that God uses means in his sovereignty to accomplish his purposes. He uses means to save and to keep, to preserve his people. And one of those means by which he preserves his people is rebuke and correction. And so Paul is reminding the Galatians of all it is that sinners possess by faith in Christ Jesus. And he is admonishing them to stand guard there and keep from falling back into former slavery. And as we will see as we continue, he remembers their earnestness in those early days. And he is confident there are genuine believers among them. But he doesn't presume upon their endurance either. He admonishes them to stay the course. Returning to legalism, whereby our works, thinking that our works in some way contribute to our justification, is a return to slavery. It is exchanging the full rights of sonship that is ours by faith upon believing in Christ Jesus, that is ours from the moment we are saved, the same as it is 30, 40, 50 years from now. It is exchanging that for weak and worthless principles of religion. It is true that God demands righteousness of every human being. This is what God's law reveals to us, his high and holy standard that we ought to keep. We should. But it is also true that we cannot obtain to that standard by our works. And so it is that we need God's righteousness that comes to us, not by our works, but by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. A righteousness that is not ours by earning and pulling up our you know, socks and working really hard, but rather is gifted to us by God in his grace. Legalism comes in many forms. And one of those forms says that that faith in Christ Jesus is not in fact enough. That you've got to add something to that 
in the works that you do. As we've said before, as we've been going through Galatians, there is a a tendency toward legalism. It is something that we all have to continually battle. There is a tendency to think that our works, the things that we don't do maybe, are the thing that will commend us to God, that will make us worthy. And there are teachers out there who are very willing to preach that message to you. And we must be on guard against all forms of enslaving religion, including that which comes to us in the name of Christ. So consider again what we have been seeing, what is yours by faith alone, justification, union with Christ, adoption as God's sons, and eternal inheritance. This is a gift received by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't fall back into thinking that you've got to try to attain these things through your efforts and your works. However long the Lord might tarry, let us not grow weary of being on guard against legalistic enslaving religion. Secondly, stay diligent against the loss of your first love. Paul remembers the early days of the Galatian church here and he appeals to them. He says in verse 12, Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. He wants them to believe as he does. He recalls to them, has them remember that when he went to them, he became like them. He didn't raise issue about Jewish ceremonies. He ate their food. He didn't raise scruples over food laws because they were not in effect. He didn't have to, and he didn't. He just went to them, became like them in order to reach them with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He didn't raise anything about these these ceremonies with them like the Judaizers are. He says, he he continues, he says, you did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. Paul's recalling their great affection that they had, their love for him, that they showed him when they believed, when they believed the gospel that he preached. They received his message and then they received him, he says, as if, He was an angel, or as if he was Christ Jesus himself. That's how they treated him. This was despite the fact that he was a burden to them. His his physical ailment was a trial to them. It's not known for certain what Paul's ailment was. We know in Acts 14, when he was in Galatia, he was stoned at one point. So possibly that's, that's the reference. But it's not certain. Some believe it to be an eye issue, uh, given what he says in verse 15 here. Regardless of what exact ailment he's talking about and how exactly he came about it, they didn't despise Paul for it. Rather, they lovingly received the message that he proclaimed and the messenger himself. Verse 15, he continues, What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes 
and given them to me. Again, he's reminding them of the love that they showed toward him, this messenger of the gospel. This love was clearly the result of having believed the message that Paul had preached. They believed the good news. They turned from their sin. They believed in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. They were filled with love for God as a result of this and the grace he showed them. And they were also filled with love for this bold messenger that showed up weak as he might have been physically and preached this good news. They responded with Christian love toward this man. And yet now he asks in verse 16, Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? What has become of your blessed state, your joyful gladness in believing the gospel, that you would now come to view me as an enemy, as an opponent? This is a heartbreaking question, a heartbreaking uh, section of the book. They've so quickly waned in their affection for Christ and his grace and the gospel. Deserting it for a different gospel, as Paul opens the book with. That is no gospel at all. And with this desertion of the good news goes Christian love to where they now view this apostle with suspicion. They view him perhaps as an enemy of their good. He's holding out on us. He's not giving us the truth. There's more we've got to do. In Revelation chapter 2, when Christ, through the Apostle John, wrote to the Ephesian church, he said, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. The Ephesian church at that time was not without commendation. They were enduring in the faith. They were testing false prophets and they were not believing just everything they were told. And yet their love was growing cold. This is no doubt referring to their love for the Lord and neighbor. And here in Galatians, Paul is reminding them of their genuine and practical Christian love that they had for him as they had responded to the gospel, as they rejoiced in God's love toward them in Christ Jesus. And yet this grace and love of God for them is something that they were forgetting, they were moving away from. As they adopted legalism, their love for God was waning they were abandoning this truth and they were spitting upon God's kindness. Consider that it is no small ingratitude to turn away from the gracious gift of God and try to pay him for it with some sort of pitiful effort. God is all holy and righteous and perfect and demands perfect righteousness. But maybe if I just do some of these external ceremonies, that'll be enough to pay him off. Or pay him back. That's no small matter or small ingratitude. When God gives everything required for salvation graciously by believing. To turn around and try to pay him with a couple of dirty, worthless pennies. Thinking that that is going to be the thing. 
that gets me across the line. It's no small ingratitude. It's no small error. Paul would have them remember the gospel that they believed at first and their former zeal for this truth and love that came with it and recover this. With regard to drifting in zeal and love for the gospel and God's people, a contemporary of Martin Luther, the reformer in the 1500s, a man who was a fellow German reformer to Luther, a man named Erasmus Sarcerius, maybe that's how you pronounce it, he said this, Our own time can serve as an example of this to us. When the gospel was first recovered in its purity, there was no one who was not extremely fervent and dedicated both to the doctrine and to those who taught it. But now, how much coldness is there? How much boredom? How much neglect? We are reminded by the example of the Galatians how easy it is to fall away from true doctrine and embrace what is false How easy it is to fall into boredom and neglect when the gospel has been preached for some time. We need to take that seriously. Our own church is coming up on our 10th anniversary in the fall. And it was really formed and began with a fervency for the authority of Scripture and the proclamation of God's gospel of grace. And this is something that we must not weary, grow weary of. We wouldn't be the first people to hear the good news preached And then to wrestle with and struggle with our love growing cold. Our love for God and his gospel. The love of fellow brothers and sisters. A love of the good news of God's grace for sinners. It is something we absolutely must stay diligent to preserve. A message that we must fight to remain Zealous for. Let us fight against allowing the passage of time and the deceitfulness of sin and the hardness of the world around us. Let us fight to keep those things from allowing our love to grow cold, our affections for God and His grace toward us, and our love for one another. Let us pray to this end that we might remain here in this gospel, grow up in it, but not ever leave it, not ever grow bored of it or tired of it or tempted by whatever new message is coming down the pike. Let us pray to this end. Let us stir one another up to this love. Stay diligent against the loss of your first love. Thirdly, stay diligent against those who would use you for their purposes. Verse 17 says, 
They, speaking of the Judaizers, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. These false teachers, they're cutting the Galatians off from Paul, and more importantly, from the true gospel of God's grace to sinners. They are making much of the Galatians. They're zealously dedicating themselves to the Galatians. They're trying to win them over. But they're doing this ultimately for no good purpose, Paul's saying. It's ultimately to make them look good. Verse 18 says, It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Paul's point in verse 18 seems to be an acknowledgement that both Paul and the Judaizers are both making much of the Galatians. That is, they're both seeking them, seeking after them. They both want their agreement. They're both trying to get them to agree with what they're saying. But Paul is saying that he is doing it for a very different end purpose, namely their formation in Christ. This is the good purpose for which he is seeking them or trying to make much of them, as the translation the ESV puts it. It wasn't just that way when Paul was with them, but even now as he's not present with them, but is forced to have to write this letter to them, he still has their standing in Christ in view. He's not a man pleaser, and nothing has changed in his message. Just as at the first he wanted them to believe in Christ and to have Christ formed in them, so too now that is still his ongoing concern and what is motivating this letter. That's the good end that he has in view. But the Judaizers, on the other hand, are seeking the Galatians in order that the Galatians will ultimately make them look good. Paul will say this again in chapter 6. In verse 12, he says, It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. And not only in order that they might not be persecuted for the cross, or sorry, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Their message would shut these people out of God's grace if they were to believe it. These Judaizers are those who boast in externals. They don't actually keep the law. Again, legalists think they have a high view of the law. Well, we've got to keep these things in order to be saved. It's you people who preach grace alone and faith alone who have a low view of the law. But in the end, they don't have a high view of the law because they think that they can actually keep it well enough to earn God's favor. That's what you say. They don't actually keep the law. Just some of these externals, and they think that's what God requires. The Galatians following after them will just make the Judaizers look good, but it is not at all for the good of the Galatians. We must also be diligent against those who would come to us in the name of Jesus, but actually just be there to use us and not have our ultimate good in mind. Again, the Judaizers preach Christ. They came as Christians. They would have said as much. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, certainly, absolutely. But also, here's, here's some more. There are all kinds of ministries out there. 
so many coming in Christ's name who would have your eyes, who would have your ears, who would have your affection, who would have your money, who would have your souls. And to what end? I can't help but wonder how many truly do care about the people they're reaching to and how many are just building a brand or a name for themselves by peddling whatever their particular message happens to be. The reality is we can't know for certain and I don't think we need to determine everyone's motive all the time in everything before we might gain some help from somebody. But what we can't do is be naive about these things. Wolves come in sheep's clothing, our Lord told us. They come in Christ's name. Not every author for Christian publishers is out for your good. They don't all care about your soul. They have a book to sell and they have another book they'd like to write. They need your money. They want your money. Not every podcaster is out for your good. They want your viewership. They want your downloads and clicks and likes and so on. The fact of the matter is there is money and much of it to be made on the backs of Christians and evangelicals. The Christian music industry, for example, has been using and abusing Christians for decades. How many have made a lucrative career, big bucks, touring all over, only to turn around one day and tell you that your Christianity is bigoted, your sexuality is backwards, your ethics are backwards, you're a racist in the end after all, and they hate you and slap you on their way out the door with all of their bucks. This is very common and is repeated. Remember years ago, Zondervan, the Christian publisher, was acquired by a secular publishing company. Ask, why? Why would a secular company buy a Christian publishing company? Answer, there is money to be made. My point here is not that you cannot trust anyone or any ministry, but let us be careful and watchful and not naive. There are those who are zealous for you for a false purpose and motive, trying to make a living, trying to fill up their school, wanting to sell subscriptions, wanting to have a loud voice and influence. Be careful, is all I say. Stay diligent against those who would use you for their purposes. And finally, stay diligent in your pursuit of Christian maturity. Verse 18, it is always good to be made much of for good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, my little children. Notice Paul's love for them. In all of this, treating him like he's now an enemy to them, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. 
Paul likens his ministry to them here as a mother giving birth. It's painful, it is a struggle, but it is worth it in the end for Paul. And the end for Paul is the forming of Christ in them. He longs for them to believe and for the believers to be built up in Christ or for Christ to be built up in them. He's speaking of Christian maturity. Christ formed in you is is a great phrase. This is Christ-likeness. You might talk about Christ-likeness. That's sometimes maybe one of those Christian words that we might use. Um, but it's, it, this is one of the places we find the concept of having Christ formed in you. Paul rebukes in this letter at various times, in very harsh ways at times, calling them foolish. Remember, he, he just kind of blasts out of the gate in chapter 1, verse 6, uh, coming after them for their you know, straying from this gospel. But we also see throughout this letter his love and his tenderness toward the people. He's perplexed. He's confused by what they're doing. He's uncertain about them. And so he wishes that he could be with them, likely implying here that it would be, they would ease his anxiety and help him to deal with this and get to the root of the matter. Paul's desire for them is for Christ to be formed in them. This is the end that he is laboring toward. This is another thing that we must be diligent about. Pressing on in maturity in Christ. Let us seek the Lord and be reminded of the goodness of all that is holy and righteous. We do not seek the Lord in order to have him save us. We don't seek righteousness in order to establish our own righteous standing before God or to try to beef up what Christ has done. But as sons adopted by his grace, we now pursue the things of the Lord. Romans 8.29 says, For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. This is the end for which we have been purchased and redeemed. God is forming a people in the image of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is himself, we're told, the image of God. And Christians are to follow Paul's own example of pressing on toward that goal, you remember from Philippians chapter 3 and verse 12, Paul writes, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me. And clearly for Paul, conformity into Christ's image involves steadfastness in the gospel of grace. Not moving on from it to some legalistic establishment of our own righteousness. In our flesh, watchfulness and diligence in these matters is tiresome, it's weary, it's difficult. Ours is truly a spiritual battle. However, our Lord does 
promise and does give grace along the way. And so we go about this battle with great hopefulness, confidence, not because we are so great and strong in ourselves, but because we are confident and hopeful that God will be faithful to keep us and preserve us. And so let us remain diligent to press on in the faith, preserving the truth of the gospel that sinners are saved by God's grace through faith alone. And that is what the call of the gospel is. Every man, woman, and child is a sinner. We are born with sinful natures. We have violated God's holy law. And we deserve his condemnation. The just penalty for our sins is death. And after death comes the judgment from God and eternity under his wrath. Such is the holiness of God and such is the awfulness of human sinfulness. And yet God in his kindness has made a way for sinners to be forgiven by sending his son in the fullness of time to be born of a woman. The eternal son took flesh to himself and dwelt among us. He obeyed God's law with complete perfection and secured righteousness. And then that righteous Holy One went to the cross and he died on the cross. Why? Not for his own sins, but for the sins of his people placed upon him. And he suffered the wrath of God for those sins. He died, he was buried, and he was raised again on the third day in victory over those sins. Sinners die and stay dead, but the Lord Jesus Christ rose again from the dead in victory. And the Bible says that everyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved, will be forgiven. God says to repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look away from yourself, deny yourself that you cannot possibly measure up to God's righteous, holy standard. You have no hope in yourself and in your own works. The only hope for anyone to be saved is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and pin all of your hope on him. And those who do, God graciously pardons, unites to Christ, justifies us. He declares us righteous. We have a righteous standing before which we can, or in which we can stand before God. This is the gospel of God's grace. We cannot add anything to that. The moment we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and are justified, we are truly justified, truly made heirs, sons, granted eternal life. And all of our strivings and all of our life beyond that moment, even if we live 60 more years from the moment we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, None of those other acts or works add to what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. Whenever we die and stand before God, we will stand purely in the righteousness of Christ, not in our own. That is what Paul is seeking to uphold throughout Galatians. That is what we find throughout the scriptures. Abraham was justified by believing 
looking ahead to the promised offspring that would come. We can see that offspring has come, the Lord Jesus Christ. We see how it is that he has purchased salvation for sinners. And we believe in him. And as he has risen, he has also ascended to the Father's right hand, where he intercedes for his people, for those who believe in him. And from the Father's right hand, the eternal Son of God will return And we will be raised with resurrected bodies, those who believe in him, forever to dwell with our Lord in the new heavens and new earth. All of this is a gift God gives in his grace. And this is the message that the church has for the world. There are so many things we don't know. There are so many things that we are not experts in. But this is our message. Our world is full of sinners. And we all rightly deserve God's wrath for our sins. And yet, God is gracious and shows mercy and pardons sinners who look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us remain diligent to press on in believing this, to preserve this truth of the gospel to foster love and affection for God and for one another. Let us be diligent to resist all intrusions and legalism, those who would impede us and use us for ungodly purposes, all as we press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you today. We thank you for your grace. We have no other hope than that you show grace and kindness to sinners who believe in your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have done everything required to save us and for us to stand before you. Father, may we be those who put no confidence in the flesh. Father, forgive us where we have perhaps waned in our zeal and joy at this message, in this great news. Father, I pray that you'd restore and renew us in this, that you would gladden our hearts, that we would not become bored with this message, but, re but be refreshed in it continually. Father, give us grace to persevere in these truths and to publish these truths to others. And Father, we thank you for your people all around the world who are proclaiming this good news and holding fast. Father, we pray you would just continue to do good to your people here and everywhere. Father, strengthen us and renew us and encourage us even now and as we go from this place. We pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.